Okay, welcome back to the Lars Resort. The resort is up and, and running again. I, I think the resort never really leaves. I think it's always kind of there, whether the episodes come out when you expect them to or not. But we are still a podcast with me, Lars Sievertson, brought to you by Betson. We're back today anyway, and the season is almost over. There'll, there'll be some proper post-season summary. What did we learn from all of this? Hmm, type of content on here eventually, but uh, there's kind of a cluster of interesting stuff right now I'd like to chat about. I think there's plenty of stuff here for, for an episode of the resort because we had an FA Cup final at the weekend uh, between Manchester United and City, and it was a strange thing to sort of uh, experience on the day because I, I I sat and I watched the whole sort of build up as you should as you should do. Uh, for for the FA Cup final as, as part of the ritual, I, I find. And as you're watching all these sort of features and you, you're seeing people talk about the game and all this sort of stuff, you do sort of gradually almost start convincing yourself that, you know, it could be something, it could be an upset here. Who knows? You know, maybe United have a chance. And it's such a sort of strange, irrational thing that happens even though we have, you know, 38 games plus, so pretty solid evidence to suggest that City are quite a lot better, uh, even though, you know, United had been winning games towards the end of the season, but they weren't very convincing, you know, they did kind of limp across the finish line in the end. City took their feet off the gas after securing the league title, but you know that the level that City are at are much higher, generally speaking, than the level United are at. And and I, and I heard one of the pundits on BBC also say this, that, you know, I was pretty convinced City would win, but the closer we get to the kickoff, you know, you think, uh... But, of course, those are largely irrational thoughts, and when the game kicks off, uh, we see... Well, in this case, we saw very, very quickly, of course. I mean, that wasn't really something you could... Uh, could account for uh, a superb volley from, from Ilkay Gundogan. Uh, but... I did think that goal was interesting in the sense that it was clearly like a planned move. One of the City players, was it Grealish? One of them referenced how it was kind of a planned move that they do from kickoff, that they kind of played it back and then hit it long towards Erling Haaland, which is quite remarkable. As City have like a, a planned move that they, they, they do uh, on, on purpose and then it's getting it launched. And, and, and this is, you know, we've, we've talked about it, how Holland just kind of gives them another dimension. They have the option of launching it, and they did, and it landed where it did, and Gundogan hit the volley that he did. But you, you're kind of expecting United to crumble there, but they did fight back. City, you know, they move the ball better, and they look impressive and all this sort of stuff, but they didn't create that many big chances. And United got that penalty, which uh, there's not much more we need to say about that. The handball rule, penalties, we've, we've been through this, but it, it is what it is. Uh, suddenly, you know, they're, they're, they're back into it. But then, of course, City score pretty early in the second half. And this game, this I mean, this goal was a goof, I think we have to say, from United's perspective. The first one, you might say, okay, Lindelof should clear that further, but that kind of hit from Gundogan, well, what were you going to do? But this one, like, you know Gundogan has been kind of hot recently, that he has these sort of shots from range in his locker. There's a free kick, you know, it's almost like a corner, but it is a free kick out wide that comes in. And suddenly, should we, should we just leave Gundogan there on the box? You feel like there should there's so much like football know-how in this team now. Someone should have realized, uh-oh, this this isn't good. Someone's got to come up. And um, and then actually the finish isn't great in the end, but uh, but the hair can't get to it. And that kind of sets the rest of the game up. And I'm I think it's kind of difficult to know... If that was City just kind of holding back, if that was City thinking we are kind of getting tired towards the end of the season, we know we got one more game, we're not going to burn off uh, the remaining sort of gunpowder in our stores now and we're 2-1 up against United, or how much that was United stopping City from from creating stuff. But at the end of the day, City did not create that many big chances in the game and, and United do get to a point where right towards the end they have this sort of balls bouncing around and and they nearly managed to take it into extra time so, so the big focus is after the game that uh, oh city are so much better than united and uh, city moved the ball very well and they're a level above united but you know what we knew that going into the game we, we had a lot of evidence to suggest that city are i mean city are now uh, possibly the best version of the most dominant team we've seen in modern english football history uh, they have recorded higher points totals than they will this season. Uh, but I think what we've seen this spring 
having successfully integrated Erling Hall onto the team, having found the sort of John Stones hybrid midfield thing, they, they, they can hurt you in so many different ways now that uh, I think the most complete City side we've seen. United, of course, are a work in progress, as we know. They've, they've, made, they've, they've moved in the right direction this season. But uh, they're not they're not as good as Man City. So so having seen what Man City did to Real Madrid, uh, and uh, knowing what Man City can do to a team, you know against Real Madrid, it was like it was like my dog when she like gets bored and she picks up a toy and she like pick it up and just just shake it, just shake the thing. Uh, that's kind of what City can do to opponents. They just pick them up and just shake them until they're not moving anymore. Uh, and 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 I think with that in mind. United turning up, not getting thumped, being competitive in the game, being in a position towards the end of the game where a lucky bounce could have taken it extra time. I, I think that's not bad. I mean, if you're a United fan, you're probably never going to be satisfied with not winning a title, but all things being what they are, it's a, it, it wasn't a disaster by any means. It does raise a question, though, that game, and I want to talk about it a little bit. I think we all agree that United have made progress this season, uh, but we see that there's a bit of a gulf between them and a team they're at least hoping to compete with, a team they should be able to compete with. So how do you close that gap going forward? That that is, I think, the big the big question. What what does United have to do to get closer to, to Man City? And there are a couple of things uh, I'd like to flag up, not in order of importance, by the way, because the most obvious one I'll save to last. Uh, but one thing is, I think it is very difficult to be successful these days with a goalkeeper who can't pass the ball. Uh, I think having a good build-up from the back is central to what most elite teams do. It's certainly something Eric Ten Hag would like to do. I'm, pr- I'm pretty confident. And and David De Gea, he, he just can't do it. You know, he, he just can't do it. And and there was a time where David De Gea was one of the best shot stoppers in the world. If you go back a few years, that season they finished second under Mourinho. Uh, De Gea's numbers just kind of explodes all the XG models. I mean, he was incredible uh, that year. It's a big reason why they finished second. And and when he is that good at stopping the goals, then you think, okay, you know, we'll bite the bullet on this one and we'll just play more direct out from the back, hit it long a bit more, and, and, and we'll figure out a ma- way to make that work because this guy will at the end of the day, this guy will save us points down the other end. Uh, but of course, what we've increasingly seen, increasingly seen with the hair, is that he isn't that good a shot stopper anymore anyway. Uh, he, he still pulls off some great saves occasionally, but there have just been too many mistakes this year. So you have a goalkeeper who, A, can't do one of the most fundamental things this coach and most other top coaches in the world would want him to do, which is to, to participate in the build-up and help move the ball around. He used to be one of the best shot stoppers around, but now he's not anymore. He's making too many stakes. And he's also, by my reckoning, according to reports, the best paid goalkeeper in the world. Like, that's not a good situation for the club. That that needs to not be a thing anymore. So the, the contract is up this summer. They do have an option to extend it for one year. You would assume that would be on his current terms. You, you must you have to not do that like doing that would be crazy uh, for, from United's perspective now if he is willing to sign a new contract on heavily reduced terms and I mean heavily reduced terms with no guarantee that he'll be first choice then okay you you might have him around because whoever you signed this summer there's going to be some risk attached to that you're probably going to bring a new goalkeeper into the football club and if David De Gea is still around, then you have an option. Like if the new guy has a nightmare, you have the option of putting De Gea uh, back into goal, right? And it, you still have a problem, but you know he's he's there. Uh, he he wouldn't be the worst second choice to have around if that's a role he's he's happy with. But for sure, you'd want him to reduce his salary by a lot uh, for, for that to be a thing. Whatever happens, if you want to be the kind of team that can realistically challenge Manchester City, that can get close to or over 90 points in a season. I don't think you can do that without a goalkeeper that can pass the ball these days. I don't don't think that's possible because so often United games have just become much more open than you want them to be because your goalkeeper having the ball leads to loss of possession, not every time, but very often because he hits it long and quite aimlessly long very often. 
and 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 then you lose possession in midfield and then you can't control the game like you want to and that is part of the reason why you end up dropping a lot of points so i think you do have to address that i've seen some comment that under ten Hag, yeah they're they're getting better but the football isn't always great i mean yeah no because you can't like you can't build yeah your passing game is is not going to be good anyway that is a thing they have to deal with this summer no doubt at all secondly i think they they have to look again at the midfield because the Casemiro, Eriksen, Fernandez thing, it did work well for periods of the season. Uh, but as the season went on, I thought Eriksen started looking tired. And and you don't really have a convincing option uh, aside from him in midfield. I mean, you, you had Fred in there against City to add some more physical uh, capability. Uh, you had Fred who can do that. You had McTominay who can do that. Sabitzer had some good games, but not sure he's the answer either. And he's only on loan anyway. Eriksen has some physical limitations. Uh, Casemiro is good, but he's 31. He's not the quickest. And and Bruno Fernandes is a bit of a wild card. I mean, you you can call him a midfielder, but he's more of like a very attack-minded number 10 who, who will track back and will help out. But, you know, he we know what Bruno Fernandes is by now. So you want an option you can put in there uh, to, to, to rest Ericsson, to not have to play him every single game. Uh, someone who can cover a lot of ground, but who can also uh, pass and move the ball well, uh, as well as be a ball winner. So, so I do think looking at Mason Mount for that role makes total sense. If you're a United fan, maybe there's not a huge amount of love out there for Mason Mount, I'm, I'm sensing. That, that might seem like an underwhelming move. But but what you want for this guy is you want someone who can who has the legs to help out Casemiro a little bit, because Casemiro is great, but... You know, he, he can't cover as much ground as maybe some others uh, can. You want someone who has the legs to help him out defensively there. And you want someone who has the tactical discipline to cover for, like, when Bruno Fernandes goes walkabout because he's a very attack-minded guy and he wants to get forward. So someone who has the legs and the tactical discipline to do that, but who's also a, a good passer of the ball. Like, if, if you feed that into, like... Um, like an algorithm or something and go through all the stats and the capabilities of all the players, you know, you're not going to come up with that many answers. It's, it's, it is quite a, a big ask for a player. And for me, I think Mason Mounts takes a lot of them and his English, which is always good because you have to keep an eye on that homegrown quota. It's not, I don't think it's a huge problem at United, but it's, it's never, never a downside. He's going to want a big contract. I mean, that's the reason why he's, he's leaving Chelsea, mainly. And Chelsea need the money for, for financial fair play reasons. So they're probably going to play a bit hardball on, on price because they need the money this summer specifically. So it's not an easy deal to get over the line, but I think it's a deal that makes a lot of sense, even if he's not the most exciting name in the world, just to complement the stuff you already have. You have an elite defensive midfielder in Casemiro. You have an elite sort of creator and goal threat in Fernandez, And what you want is someone who can cover a lot of ground and contribute off the ball, as well as kind of knit things together in possession. Now, Eriksen obviously uses the ball incredibly well, but he has limitations off the ball. We, we know that. Fred and McTominay will put in a great shift, but they're not great on the ball. So I feel like with Mount, you get someone who's a bit of both. And he's still just 24. So, I mean, I think the logic there is pretty clear. Uh, and United going seriously for him makes just a, a ton of sense to me. Um there's another interesting question with United. Maybe not so much a big problem as an intriguing situation. Uh, is uh, what do you do with your wide players, right? Because we're all assuming you sign a new number nine, and and we'll 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 get to that. But that has to be the assumption. And Rashford's going to play uh, from the left, cutting inside. I think that's his best position. I think that that debate is over now. I think the whole Rashford should be a striker. I, I don't. I don't think anyone really thinks that anymore. That it's it's cutting in from the left seems to be where he's happiest. Uh, and on the right, on the right, the situation is fascinating to me because you have two uh, two big money signings who have not made the kind of impact you were hoping for in Anthony and Jaden Sancho, and. You have, of course, Ganacho who's looking very exciting. I know he's played on the left so far, so you could use him maybe to take some load off of Rashford. Uh, but you could probably stick Garnacho on the right as well. I'm sure he would be uh, a menace on that flank. And you have Ahmad Diallo, who's been outstanding in the championship this season for Sunderland. I mean, most likely they'll just loan him back out again, but I think you could do worse than give in some minutes uh, in the first-team squad next uh, season. I'm assuming... They're going to try to make Martial go away this summer, though you might be stuck with him for one more season just because he's on pretty high uh, salary and hasn't uh, hasn't shown much uh, the last few years. Now, the Anthony and Sancho thing is intriguing. Anthony actually cost more 
in a transfer fee, uh, but Sancho will be on a bigger contract, I'm sure. Uh, with Anthony, it's only his first season in England, while Sancho has been disappointing for two seasons now. Uh, but with Sancho, at least we have seen in the past that he can have a very high output output in, in the big league. Um, whereas with Anthony, we don't know that. I mean, he's never put up over 10 goals and 10 assists in the league season in Europe. And he was playing for Ajax. So, you know, you'd, you'd expect him to be able to do that. Uh, let's have a quick Sancho chat. Like, I do I do get a slight headache when people say, oh, it's the Bundesliga attacks. And I'd, I'd like to... We need to be more specific with what we're talking about because there are players who do well in the Bundesliga, who do well in England, vice versa, yada, yada, yada. Um, you have to, I mean, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi went from England to the Bundesliga and did very little there. Maybe there's a Premier League tax that Bundesliga clubs need to be wary of. Like, all this nonsense. Uh, point being more, more specifically in the case of Sancho, I think as a wide player, there is... I do like the Bundesliga, but you see some goofy defending in that league. You know, there are a lot of teams who play on the front foot, who, who try to entertain their fans and, and who, who want to be assertive. Uh, a lot of very, very attacking fullbacks in that division. And I do, I do think Sancho definitely found it easier to find space because people have been dragged out of position or you're, 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 you're counter-attacking or whatever. Uh, he, he probably had easier conditions to work uh, in, in that regard. But, but we also need to, need, we need to put some respect on this boy's name as they say in on the streets because in, in 2020 he had 17 goals and 16 assists now since 2006 only four other players have been over both 15 goals and assists in a single season in the top five leagues that was Eden Hazard at Lille and at his peak at Chelsea it was Luis Suarez's Barcelona it was Cristiano Ronaldo at Real Madrid and Lionel Messi at Barcelona. Now, that was back in 2020. That stat was current since then. I know at least Messi and Mbappe have both done it in PSG. But you get the idea, right? Over 15 goals and 15 assists in a season is a pretty rare thing. Not everyone's able to do that. Some some good play Like, Arjen Robben didn't manage that at, at uh, Bayern. Ribéry didn't manage that. De Bruyne didn't, although, I mean... To be fair to De Bruyne, he had 10 goals and 20 assists from Wolfsburg, which is also pretty mad. My point is, Jaden Sancho has shown that he can do the stuff, and he is currently not doing the stuff. So then you got to look at reasons why. And I, I think it's too easy to just say, well, the Bundesliga is rubbish and the Premier League is difficult. That's part of the explanation, but I don't think it's the whole explanation. If you look at old videos of him with Dortmund... Not because of the fact that he kicks the ball into the goal and he goes past players. Don't don't look at the outcome. Look at the body language. Look at how confident he looks. Look at the sort of ease of movement, the way he just doesn't hesitate when he tries to do stuff. And then compare him to what he looks like at United now. Uh, it's become such a vicious circle, I think. And it really struck me. I think I said it already on the pod, but it really struck me when I was at Old Trafford how insecure he looks uh, and how he's kind of playing within himself a bit and also how quickly people get on his back. You know, for a couple of bad touches and you got like everyone like swearing at him. It's, it's not a happy situation there. Um, and if we go back and try to unlock some of this, uh, at Dortmund, the one time his performances really dropped at Dortmund was in the autumn of 2020. It was after he'd been very heavily linked with United all summer. Maybe a bit frustrated, a lot of eyes on him, maybe mentally was ready to move and then the move didn't happen. And I always thought this was super interesting. The CEO of Dortmund, uh, Akivatsky, talked about this and said, uh, I got the quote here, the biggest difference is that he used to not think about his next ball action. Now he thinks about it. And the tenth of the second that he misses is often the exactly the one in which the opponent is already on his feet, you know, that he sort of gets ready, gets stabilized, gets it balanced. The more you try as a creative person, the more difficult it often becomes. And he said something that's kind of hard to translate, Vatske, but he said something about how Sancho had had lost his sense of ease, which I thought was just a great saying, and, and that he is a player who, you know, when he's relaxed, when he's happy, he's confident, he, he does his stuff, but if, when it's not going for him, he starts trying too hard, and uh, and, and it just becomes a little bit, uh, yeah, it doesn't quite work. I could be wrong, but I think I feel like I'm seeing a lot of that in the current Sancho he looks like a player who's far too aware uh, that he's been brought in at great expense that it hasn't worked out that the crowd will turn on him as soon as as soon as he has a few bad touches and you just see his body language when taking on an opponent compared to what it was at Dortmund he looks like a totally different player uh, and and obviously not in a good way now I don't know how you fix that he went away to the Netherlands to sort of train and recharge his battery this season I thought that seemed like a good idea but we've still only seen flashes you know six six goals and three assists and 20 
21 starts just isn't enough uh, for, from him. Can it happen at, at United? I mean, I don't... I think the other thing with Sancho is he doesn't have that crazy pace. And I think that helped him in the... I mean, I think in the Bundesliga that was less of a problem because opponents were often out of position anyways. It was easier for him to find space. Whereas in the Premier League, generally... I mean, this isn't true across the board, but there are teams who defend better than the average Bundesliga team. So he's struggling a bit more to find openings and he doesn't have the sort of searing pace that maybe Garnacho, for instance, has. So he can't just burn people for pace. What he then needs to do is play little combinations and one-twos, which he is very good at normally. So maybe a new striker might work, like bringing in a striker who's good at combining with the players around him. That could help Sancho a little bit. On the confidence thing, I don't rightly know. I mean, how it's it feels a bit cheap to sit here and say he just needs a couple of goals to go in and people to get behind him and some nice things to happen. Uh, but how long are you waiting for that for that to magically happen? Maybe he would be off better off moving somewhere else where there's a bit less attention on him, where he feels more appreciated. I mean, Lukaku is a comparison there. Lukaku had the best two seasons of his careers immediately after leaving United and going to Inter. And yes, the obvious thing here is that Serie A slightly lower level. Yes, I agree with that. But what you also hear about Lukaku from the people who who know him a bit is that he needs to feel loved. You know, he needs to feel appreciated. He also lost some weight in Italy. In the, the, that, that helped for Lukaku. I think those two seasons at Inter was in the, the best physical shape I think I've ever seen him. But, but he definitely thrived on having a more supportive environment around him. I wonder if it's a similar thing with Sancho. Uh, I, I guess for now, you probably persevere with him if you're United. See if maybe a new striker that he can link up with, if that, that can help him. And, and, and then you have, on the other hand, you have Anthony, who who has brilliant technical qualities, as we've seen. But but he's also very, very predictable. Like, he always cuts inside. He, he favours his left foot to a degree that's just ridiculous. And, and it's possible that maybe if you add, like, a good overlapping uh, fullbacks to the mix, you'd get more out of that flank because you need someone to go into that space that he occupies all the time. But but they played close to 100 million euros for this guy. And he's given you four goals and six, star- uh, six assists in 23 starts. So that's not good. And, and the fact that it's... I mean, it's close to just being a disaster. And the fact that United have, broadly speaking, been positive this season, that's going to help cover that up and take some of the focus off it. But we did know at the time when that transfer happened that United were were essentially paying a sort of top-tier transfer fee for a player who has not shown that he belongs in that top tier. With Jadon Sancho, it hasn't worked out so far. Absolutely not. But at least you've seen it on the pitch before. Uh, he has put in performances that justify him being in that kind of a top bracket. And, and really, a lot of clubs wanted him uh, when United got him. Anthony, like, no one else for paying €100 million Euros for Anthony, I can tell you. United, the only club on the planet who would have considered doing that. Um, I think it's the 14th biggest transfer fee in the history of football. And for, for someone who is mostly potential, I think that's a pretty crazy thing to do. Even if that's offset by the pl- the player's wages probably being considerably less, especially less than Sancho if we're comparing it to him. But I guess with Sancho and Anthony, neither of them will look good enough for what United hope to achieve. But you just kind of have to stick with them. because A, because you spend so much money, and, and B, because in the case of Sancho, you know that there's something there. You just have to help him somehow to, to unlock it. And with Anthony, I guess... It's to do with coaching and trying to make him a little bit more unpredictable. Maybe having a better attacking fullback could help. And But in both cases, you also have like Garnacho, possibly even uh, Ahmad Diallo, kind of sort of sniffing around in the background, kind of maybe deserving to get some some minutes as well. Very fascinating situation to see heading, heading into next uh, season. I've been putting it off a bit, but we're getting to the obvious point about United. The point that everyone from from me all the way through Ericton Hag to every fan in the stands, young people, old people, cats, dogs and farmyard animals, everyone knows that Manchester United need a striker. And it feels like this leads into a conversation about Harry Kane because Ericton Hag reportedly wants him, wants him bad. And you can see why that is. Yes, He's a great goal scorer, but he's also a very intelligent passer of the ball, which which means two things. It means, firstly, you can imagine him making both Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes better, more efficient, uh, because you think, okay, maybe there can be a slight positional clash between Kane and Fernandes. Kane likes to drop off into that number 10 area that obviously Fernandes likes to operate in. But remember, some of Kane's best seasons 
were when he was dropping off and leaving space for, for Dele Alli to sort of make runs into the box and burst into now, when Dele Alli was very good. And you can totally imagine uh, Bruno Fernandes and Kane kind of hitting it off and Kane dropping off like he does, Fernandes making runs in that space he's vacated and, and Kane kind of playing him in. I, I, I see that working. And like I mentioned, having a very intelligent striker to play off, I think is one of the things that might help you unlock some of that potential that we know that Jadon Sancho has. So, so he ticks a lot of boxes for United, and I can see why they would overlook the fact that he turns 30 this summer and will be very expensive. Uh, I think he is a guy who can, can really elevate this team the age is a concern, but the fact that he's such a smart player, that his passing range is so good, even when his physique starts to deteriorate a little bit, even if he loses some acceleration. I mean, I think Harry Kane is one of those guys who looks after his body quite meticulously. So maybe he has more years in him. And even if he loses a bit of acceleration, a bit of pace, maybe he can't quite make the runs off the ball that he's made. Maybe he can't quite get into all the dangerous positions he's used to getting into as a striker, I still think he will be an incredibly useful and dangerous forward all the same if you take away some of that uh, mobility. And we've seen recently in the game, we've seen several like number nines age very well, like Lewandowski and, and Benzema being very obvious examples, but also sort of a tear down. Guys like Giroud and Edin Dzeko, obviously not as good as Kane, but they've kept being very useful players for their clubs well into their 30s, even if they're not very fast. So if you've listened to this pod and stuff I've done over the years, you might have noticed I'm generally very big on being careful with the contracts you hand out and the money you spend on guys who are close to or past 30. So often handing out big contracts to people at that age uh, point is something that comes back to bite you. It's caused a lot of problems for a lot of clubs. I tend to think Kane is someone you make an exception for. Uh, I think he's worth the gamble because I think there are big parts of his games that shouldn't be too badly affected if he loses a bit of pace. I think he'll still be very, very useful. Now, the question, if you're Kane, do you go to Man United? I think that's a question worth asking because the whole reason, if you decide... I, I'm not going to be a, a, a one-club man. I, I'm going to slam the door on the, on the club where I came through, and that, that means a lot to me. And I'm, I'm sure Tottenham does mean a lot for, for Harry Kane. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to move away. Presumably the main reason you do that if you want, is that you want to experience something that you think you can't achieve at Tottenham, and the obvious answer is yeah, winning trophies. But, but what are we talking about when we talk about winning trophies? Are we talking about like maybe winning an FA Cup or a League Cup? I don't think that's... I don't necessarily think you you leave uh, Tottenham instead of being a Tottenham lifer and signing a massive new contract here and, and confirming your status as like the club legend of all club legends. You decide I've got to move. I've got to do something else. You don't do that because you want to win the FA Cup. I, I don't think that's I don't think it has that status. You do that because you're hoping to win the Premier League or have a sh- real shot at winning the Champions League, like one of the big ones. Do, do Man United win the Premier League within the next three or four years? I, I'm sorry, I don't think so. Do Man United win the league while Pep Guardiola is in charge of City? I'm, I'm not, not sure. That's going to be very, very difficult. So you're moving because you think United have a chance to win the Champions League? I don't... Mm, if you want to, like, get some trophies on your cabinet, surely from that perspective, going abroad makes a lot more sense. Uh, the one thing would be, we, we don't know, I mean, there's a fair few English players who don't seem to like the idea of, of, of living abroad. I don't know Kane personally, so I couldn't say that uh, either way. It could be a thing that he wants to stay in England to to break the Alan Shearer's all-time goal-scoring record. He's at 213 now, Kane. Shearer is at 260, so a couple of years at United logically would would take him closer to that but if the reason he wants to move on is because he wants to win things can we just agree that the fa cup or the league cup probably isn't going to cut it uh you you you, you're making that move because you want to be a champion somewhere is that happening at man united the next couple of years i'm not convinced i mean kane i'm sure like all elite sportsmen is very confident and will back himself to elevate united into that sphere But, but i think Real Madrid or possibly even Bayern Munich are options that make a lot more sense if that's what you want to achieve while you're still playing and if that's the thing you want to be able to look back on and say at least I experienced that uh, winning a league title and and going very deep into the Champions League again I think moving to Real Madrid or Bayern Munich would make a lot more sense and hey wouldn't you know it both of those two teams really need a number nine right now uh, so th- those two things could be options. I think with with Bayern Munich, I-, I can see them getting there in terms of wages. I'd be baffled 
if Bayern Munich decided to pay a hundred million pound plus for a player who who turns thirty this summer and is in the last year of his contract, that that just I mean that, that would really confuse me. That doesn't seem to be the way Bayern Munich operate. So if the Harry Kane does one more year at at uh, Tottenham and go on a free transfer next season, then I think Bayern suddenly could be an option, and then Bayern Munich would have to find some kind of short term uh, centre forward solution for next season. I can see that working. But Real Madrid, of course, now with the news that Karim Benzema is leaving, suddenly Real Madrid becomes a really interesting thing here. And I think, again, they might be hesitant to pay a big fee because Real Madrid, while Real Madrid have money, I think they are a club who's very conscious of the fact that it's hard for them to compete financially with the likes of City and PSG and some of the top English teams. Real Madrid are having to watch their money in a way that perhaps they haven't had to uh, before. So so forking out the kind of transfer fee Tottenham would demand, again, for a guy who's in the last year of his contract, a guy who's turning 30, I think there would be a reluctance to do that with Real Madrid. The word, I mean, what's being reported is that they were hoping Benzema would do one more year before they make a big move for, for Mbappe or possibly even Haaland next summer. But you could see Kane fitting into that. I mean, if he's going to age into someone who's a bit more of a number 10 or loses a bit of pace, becomes more of a facilitator, you could completely imagine him playing with Mbappe. That could be pretty cool. I think that could work. So, uh, again, what it comes down to is whether it's possible to do that deal this summer. Because I think it is difficult for Daniel Levy to be the man who sold Harry Kane. I think he really wants to avoid that. And the situation... I would say the situation is you're going to have to replace Kane either way. You either have to replace him this summer or you have to replace him next summer. If he leaves this summer, you get money for him. If he leaves next summer, you don't. So you either have money to spend on a replacement or you do not. One of those options makes more sense for the club, but I think it's going to be a tough sell uh, to a lot of the fans. If you refuse to sell Kane this summer, at least you can tell people that you did everything you could. But in the end, it was Kane who, who refused to stay. So politically, that might be more acceptable. But the third option, of course, is to sell him this summer for a fee that's so high that at least a good portion of the fans accept it. But the question is, can you get that kind of transfer fee for a guy who, again, is turning 30 and has 12 months left on his deal? And given that you're not selling to one of the oil state clubs, I I think that could be difficult. So it's hard to see a solution here. That, that works for everyone. And I have noticed recently that if you look at the betting market, the odds on, on Harry Kane staying is uh, is almost the same as of him of him leaving. It's it's roughly the same as him going to, to Real Madrid and, or Manchester United. So the betting markets are, are undecided, as am I. Anyway, finishing up with, with Man United, I mean, there's other stuff. You, you'd probably want better fullbacks, but I think, you know, quietly, one Bissaka has been okay this this spring. Between him and Diogo Dallo, it's not ideal, but it kind of, it's not a complete disaster either. Uh, Malasia and Luke Shaw, like, between them, it's, again, not ideal, but not the biggest problem the club has. If, if Lissandro Martinez is fit, him and Varane, if they're fit, you have a good centre-half pairing. You probably want uh, Harry Maguire to go away if it's possible to make that happen. Lindelof is, is useful to have around as a backup. Maybe you'd like to add a, a fourth centre-half, especially since Varane picks up injuries. But I, I think the goalkeeping situation, get a midfielder with legs to help out a little bit and buy a centre-forward. I, I think those are the three big things for me heading in for this window that you that you want to elevate in Manchester United. If Kane isn't possible, then what do you do? I mean, that, 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 that we'll have to have another pod on this. Listen, we got to stretch this out the entire summer, this sort of transfer guff pods. And we've also, crucially, we have to move on because I've done a thing. Well, I haven't actually done it yet, but I think I'm going to do a thing, which is bad. I'm going to title the pod one thing that people are really interested in. It's like, ooh, let's talk about that. But I haven't, I've got half an hour, depending on how much I edit away, without even talking about it, which is that the big news of the day is, you know, to, to dare is to kangaroo, or, or, or to dare is to didgeridoo. That, that is actually even better. To dare is to didgeridoo. Ansh Postacoglu is the new Tottenham Hotspur manager exciting times i you know what i reaction has been mixed on social media some spurs fans are quite vociferously against the appointment funny thing is they're saying exactly the same things that celtic supporters and some pundits were saying when he was appointed at celtic 
so that at least feels familiar. I kind of like this. I like this for a couple of reasons. Um, and, uh, and, and first of all, if you're a Spurs fan, and after going through the sort of turgid, toxic mess of the Mourinho and Conte eras, I would hope that you have learned at least one thing, and that is that a big name with a shiny CV is not automatically the right answer. If after all that, you still think that big name always good, not a big name always bad, then I'm sorry, there's just no hope for you. Like, there's certainly nothing I can say that can make you understand. Uh, and, and, and I think it's worth remembering Tottenham's own history, uh, own recent history. The best managers at Spurs, the most sort of successful manager at Spurs in recent times. You'd, you'd say Pochettino, obviously. You'd probably say Martignol. Those were pretty good times, even though they were, you know, Spurs weren't that successful, but they were kind of on the way in the right direction. And 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 though I'm not a fan of him personally, you probably have to throw Harry Redknapp in there, right? Those would be the three. Uh, and of those three, like Pochettino was not the first choice when he was appointed. We all know Daniel Levy wanted Louis van Gaal. Uh, they looked at some other things as well. Uh, I believe it was Franco Baldini, actually, who was very big on, on Pochettino. One of his uh, maybe not too many massively positive contributions at Spurs. Uh, Martin Yall came in as the assistant to Jacques Santini and kind of got the job by accident when Santini didn't work out. And, and Harry Redknapp was a kind of a desperation move uh, because things had gone so wrong uh, that the team looked like they could end up in a relegation battle. So they got in Harry Redknapp, who, in spite of his many, many flaws, he, he does have a proven track record of kind of getting the basics right and, and lifting the mood at, at the club. You know, give them the ketchup back, play a four four two, all this sort of stuff. So the point being, the biggest mistakes and the biggest failures Spurs have made in their modern era on the manager side that's been when they've gone for the big names. That, that, that's the thing that hasn't worked. Whereas the things that have worked have been the kind of accidental appointments almost. And then you have Nuno, who was accidental and was obviously very bad. But at least that was short. Hmm. And, and probably not that expensive. Now, we, we've kind of been over this. Spurs have caught up in a big way with the bigger clubs in the league. But at the end of the day, Tottenham are still trying to finish above teams that can spend more money than them on players and wages. And to achieve that, I tend to think you're more likely to succeed if you're thinking a little bit outside the box, rather than if you throw money at the biggest name you can afford. And by the way, those big names they've brought in, they kind of pushed the club into actually spending quite a bit of money recently. And that hasn't worked out really well either. Now, I remember... Two years ago, when Daniel Levy wrote a letter to the fans, and he said, and I have the quote here, As a club, we have been so focused on delivering the stadium and dealing with the impact of the pandemic that I feel we lost sight of some key priorities in what's truly in our DNA. And then they hired Antonio Conte, who's like, he's a, a good coach and maybe a great one under the right circumstances. He probably is a great one under the right circumstances. And he did prove that by getting Spurs to the Champions League in that first season. But you know what? Whatever the Spurs DNA is, Antonio Conte is not it. I think we can all agree. And after two big-name managers who, who play really negative football and who both seem to not particularly want to be there, there are really just two things... Uh, that that I want uh, as as a Spurs enthusiast here uh, from the next manager, and that a someone who actually wants to be there and who sees opportunities rather than limitations, because there are a lot of opportunities at Spurs. You, you said it before, you can spend a lot of time worrying about how Spurs don't have the money that, that City or, or, or Chelsea and United, whatever. But you can also look at it and say, Spurs have a lot of advantages that some of the other uh, mid-sized teams in the league do not have. I mean, Spurs, it might be better for like the mental health of Tottenham fans to sort of spend a bit more time comparing yourselves to to Aston Villa and, and Leeds and Everton and the sort of mid-sized club in terms of history and, and fan base and all of that than it is to constantly compare yourself to the teams that have a lot more money. That's just, just going to drive you insane. There are huge upsides uh, at, uh, at possible at this, at this football club. That's something I'd like to see. And B, someone who at least attempt to play some attacking football. Uh, there, That would be it. And I said there were two. Actually, there's a third thing. Beyond that... Uh, I, I want someone who seems to be a good person. I'm, I'm kind of tired of having this sort of quiet suspicion that the guy in charge of the, the team I support is actually a bad person. Uh, it'd be nice to have a, a nice fella in there. Uh, and beyond that, if you, ha- if you can get those three things, whether that guy is young, old, English, Estonian, Kenyan, white or blue, I don't really care, honestly. That, and that, that's where I'm coming from. And that all brings us to Ange Postacoglu. Now, 
I don't watch Celtic a lot. I, I certainly didn't watch Yokohama Mariners uh, a lot, or Brisbane Roar, for that matter, back when they were uh, the big news in, in the A-League. So I, I, don't, I, I don't know that much about him in the football sense, but I will say I've seen his Celtic team a few times, and I have thought, first of all, that this team seems to be pretty well coached. Uh, they have a very, very good intensity to their football. They press high. Uh, they're very clear patterns in what they do with the ball when they have it. Uh, the, the players uh, clearly knew what their job was and executed those jobs with enthusiasm and gusto. Now, he's won a lot in Scotland. That's one thing. There's a number of coaches who have won things in, in Scotland. But for me, it's more the nature of how the team played that that impressed me. I've, I've watched his Celtic team in Europe a few times this season uh, some, when they've had a hard time in some of those games but they've also had periods where they've played really decent football against some very strong opponents and then in the end you you get punished for for lacking qualities in both ends of the field but you know as us Norwegians know this is often what happens uh, when teams from smaller leagues try their luck in Europe I mean it's more that there was a clear structure and clear identity to the team that I thought was was impressive so that's a big positive the second big positive for me is that whenever I hear him speak about anything, really, I think he comes across really well. Like, there's one time I was going to do a thing uh, for an Australian TV channel, and they had me on a video call, and the other person on the video call who was ahead of me in the schedule was Ansh Postacoglu. Uh, so he was kind of speaking to the guys in the studio about the Celtic job. And he just, I, I was initially I was kind of half listening, but then he, he spoke about the club in a way I just didn't expect. And I haven't really heard a manager talk about before. Because he started talking about how it really resonated with him to work at Celtic because the club was initially set up to raise money for uh, to feed poor Irish immigrants. And for him, being from an immigrant family in Australia, growing up around immigrant clubs in, in Melbourne that had a very similar role roles in the community uh, in the sense that they were not just about the sport but they were about helping uh, people I think adjust to life in a foreign land or something he said and that, 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 he said that's something that really resonated with him and I thought wow that is not what I expected to hear from a football coach in this interview and he just seems to be someone who's very in touch with what a football club is uh, beyond uh, what happens on the pitch, what a football club means to the fans as a, as a place, as a, as a community asset, as a place where people come together and have experiences and have shared moments, shared experiences. And, and, and I just, it, this is a very small thing, but it's just one example. Uh, every, every time I hear him speak about anything, really, I get the impression that this is a really thoughtful, intelligent and, and solid guy on a human level. Now, Maybe that matters, maybe it doesn't. There have been some very successful football coaches who haven't been those things. I think we can all agree. But I'm also just thinking, this summer is clearly a bit of a reset for, for Tottenham. There's no sporting director. There's a new manager coming in. One of the best uh, players in the club's history, maybe the best player in the club's history, very possibly leaving. Uh, a big sort of year zero for Tottenham. This we we start from, you know, we start off in a new direction. No matter what happens this summer, the club seems to have lost its way a little bit in terms of the identity, as as Dan Daniel Levy put it. You know, who are we? What do we stand for? That sort of thing. I don't think Tottenham really know right now. If you're gonna have this sort of big cultural reset. I like the idea that the manager who's in charge is a guy that has really solid human values, uh, someone who's a real leader, not just in the sense that he's an angry man in a tracksuit who jumps up and down, but someone who has a bit more to him than that. And, and, and people can go on and on about uh, Postacoglu's lack of a big league experience, but I thought at least he showed at Celtic that he knows, he understands that being the manager of a football club is more about is about more is about more than just moving dots around a tactics board. It's about being the leader of a tribe. And from the outside, at least, it looks like he really had that and really understood that. And, and from listening to Celtic fans talk about him, yeah, it seems, seems good. Now, of course, none of that will matter if the team isn't successful on the pitch. So I, I think the two are more closely related than, than we sometimes think. But there will be a big challenge here because it'll be a big change of style. Uh, for the Tottenham players. Last couple of coaches uh, Tottenham have had, they've spent a lot of time sitting back. Uh, difficult transition to go from that to being a front foot, you know, high-pressing teams. You'll need to make some transfers, midfield in particular, I think. Tottenham have uh, midfielders who aren't amazing at passing the ball, put it that way. That's going to be a problem uh, when you want to play in a more dominant way. The whole Harry Kane situation is very difficult because if he goes, then very obviously you need a striker. Uh, the hope will be that uh, Postacoglu can develop some players by working with them on the training ground, by fitting them into a clearer system. Um, 
You'll probably need a new central defender who's better at playing out from the back than the ones you have now. I think the time has come for a new goalkeeper. Uh, a new left back would be nice. If you can get Perisic off the wage bill, that's probably good. And you do some... Like, there's a lot, lot of stuff going on. But there are positives. As, as much as Tottenham have been terrible, there are a lot of players in that squad who have played better in the past than they've been able to do this season. Maybe, maybe with a coach who actually likes them and believes in them uh, and gives them a bit of a, a purpose and a better shape, you can get more out of them. And, I, and I, I've gone on a bit now, but like Richarlison, for instance, has been a disastrous signing. But if you want to play with a high press and win the ball high up the field, I think the aggression he has could be very, very useful. I think you'll see more from Dejan Kulusevski under a more attack-minded coach. Uh, I can imagine uh, Postacoglu's style being a good fit for, for Son Yun min uh, I'm intrigued to see Pedro Porro as a very attacking right back in an attacking team. I'm a little bit worried about what happens down the other end, but, you know, it could be fun. Uh, I, I'm excited about Tottenham potentially being a fun team to watch again. Now, listen, of course, there are downsides. I can sit here and talk about I have a great impression of Ange and how it doesn't matter if he's not a big name, but it is a bigger and more important question what the, what the players make of it. I might not think a big CV automatically makes you a good coach or a good fit for any job, but it does buy you a lot more leeway with the players. Now, I am sure uh, there might be players in the Tottenham squad who look at this appointment and think, what is this? And, and some might even like be straight on the phone to the agent and said, like, I want out of here. I've not heard of this guy. This seems like nonsense. Now, first of all, my argument would be, if they do that, then they're awful characters and you want to get rid of them anyway. Like, get them out of the club. No, none of that. People, We want people who want to work. Anyway, it, it, you have to acknowledge that there is a challenge there. And if the if the season doesn't start very well, it, get, it can get very difficult for Postacoglu very, very quickly in terms of getting the players to buy into what he's doing, in terms of the fans not getting too toxic, in terms of the media not trying to kill him and getting too negative. Like, the fans and the media, maybe it shouldn't matter, but the players aren't immune to the noise around the club. Up, and it does make the jobs harder if he's being sort of if he's very very unpopular by the surroundings and there's another risk should we call it let, let's call it the nathan jones problem right because nathan jones almost said it out loud or at least very strongly hinted to it and that is that he felt he couldn't treat the southampton players the same way he treated a, a, a luton player you know and, and maybe you have to speak differently to a guy who's on 100 grand a week than you can to a guy who's on five or ten grand a week but maybe that also becomes a trap. Maybe you feel like you need to treat them differently and in, in so doing you start deviating from the principles that have gotten you to this point and made you successful previously. We have certainly seen managers take a step up, uh, managers who have done good work and just really not adapted to the new level and the demands and the type of people you're dealing with. Nathan Jones, seemingly a very clear example of that. But, but I would also say... Celtic are a strange club because whatever you think of the level in the Scottish League, Celtic are a massive club. Like in Glasgow, Celtic is one of the biggest clubs in the world. <laughs> and and, and uh, it is a very high pressure environment. Any dropped point is like a major disaster. And, and I also think there are a fair few big egos in the Celtic dressing room as well. Because when you play for a team that has that kind of status in the social fabric of the city and the country, it has to affect the players a little bit. So it is a big step up. But I think the way you handle the Celtic thing is very, very promising. Postacoglu seems like the kind of guy who will stay true to himself and his principles. Uh, and then... We will see. I mean, historically, he is, by all accounts, someone who's very clear in what he wants from a player. And if the player isn't willing to submit to that, he gets sent. He gets shown the door. He gets sent sent away. Now, what happens when Ange Postacoglu tells Daniel Levy he wants to get rid of a player that Daniel Levy maybe doesn't want to sell, or maybe there isn't much of a market for? And when there's currently no sporting director to act as a buffer between the two and help deals get done, that is an interesting question. Uh, that, that, that doesn't necessarily have to end well. And, and there's also another thing here, which is we all agree Tottenham have a lot of work to do in the transfer market this summer. They have a new manager who's inexperienced at this level. This would be a really good time to have an experienced and strong sporting director at your club. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Uh, but uh, those were my first sort of scattered thoughts on Ange to Tottenham. This is turning into a very long episode. Uh, but um, I'm just looking forward to having a head coach at Tottenham who A, wants to be there, uh, B, wants to attack, and C, seems like a good person. Wants to be there, wants to attack, seems like a good person. I feel like we've been 0 for 3 on those criteria for quite a while at Tottenham Football Club. So I'm pretty happy at, at this development. Will it actually work? Well, 
It's going to be difficult. Like with Saudi Newcastle on the rise, uh, United getting better and possibly becoming a Qatari asset, you know, Arsenal being good again, uh, Liverpool presumably improving, uh, Pochettino in charge of all these kids at Chelsea, Man City looking invincible. It's getting Tottenham into the Champions League isn't going to be easy over the next couple of years. It's a tough gig. Uh, but I think the club recognizing that it's time to think outside the box a little bit. I think that is a good start. Now, lastly, did you did you guys read my FA Cup final betting preview? I'm going to put some work into that. Um, we're going to do the same ahead of the Champions League final. Just look at a few bits and pieces. I mean, our main bet for the FA Cup final landed. The City to win and under four and a half goals, that that was fine. My side bets, not so much. Kind of got my, got my cards all wrong. Uh, how, how Casemiro didn't get booked, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, for the Champions League final, uh, bets on have a pre-built combi type of thing that's been boosted a little bit. And I kind of like it, and I'm going to explain why. Uh, Man City to win and both teams to score. And then over two and a half goals. That seems redundant. If both teams score and Man City wins, it's going to have to be over two and a half goals. Anyway, Man City to win, both teams to score over two and a half goals. That has been boosted from 290 to 320. And and I like this. Now, first of all, yes, Champions League finals can be slow, can be cagey. Inter are probably going to try to be defensive. But, but, but City have not been great at keeping clean sheets this season. In the league, they've only kept a clean sheets in 34% of their games this season. Last season, it was 55%. So a notable drop there, as good as they have been. They do let in goals. Uh, I think they'll win. I think they'll win comfortably. Uh, and, and actually, I think City to win in 90 minutes, I mean, that that's at 150 now. And I think that's too high. I think I think it's kind of a boring bet, 150, but I think it's worth backing, really. Uh, we'll get into it on the betting piece on the website when, when it gets closer to the time. I think City will win. But I think there's a very real chance that they concede a goal at some point. Uh, so City to win both teams to score at 320. I think that's a really good price with that boost. I think that's worth looking at. Uh, we'll get more into it. I have some season. I have this idea that I'm going to grade all the clubs for the work they've done this season, uh, like a strict teacher or a, or a not strict teacher. And I'm also going to confront myself uh, with my own awful predictions uh, for the season back from the start of the season. That'll be fun. Uh, that'll be the next couple of episodes. I hope you will join me for that after this uh, marathon, Man United and Ange and Kane session. God, this went long, but I've got to stop saying it. It often tends to go long. Uh, thanks for sticking with me to the end. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>